Virginia Woolf, one of the most influential English writers in the 20th century, once wrote, One cannot think well, love well, and sleep well if one has not dined well. While we are quite sure that Ms. Woolf was not referring to dysphagia per se, the distress and health impact on patients who cannot dine well as a result of their dysphagia is certainly real. Indeed, the term itself comes from Greek roots to mean difficult eating. In clinical practice, we use dysphagia to describe the sensation patients have when solid or liquid foods are being hindered in passing from their mouth into their stomach. And because dysphagia itself has such a broad differential, an organized approach to its diagnosis and management is critical. Today, our patient presents with dysphagia and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Not So Difficult to Swallow, an Approach to Dysphagia. Time for our minute physiology. Swallowing is a complicated, coordinated muscular dance where a misstep may cause dysphagia. The first step begins voluntarily with the transfer of food from the oropharynx through the upper esophageal sphincter, or UES, into the esophagus. The closure of the UES promptly after the food bolus passes prevents aspiration. The muscle within the esophagus consists of striated muscles proximally and smooth muscle distally that undergoes peristalsis to move food down into the stomach. In the average individual, this whole transit occurs in about 10 seconds. At the distal end of the esophagus, there is the lower esophageal sphincter, or LES. The relaxation of the LES allows the passage of food into the stomach, but may also allow acidic contents to enter and irritate the esophagus in certain pathologies. The innervation involved is complex, but suffice it to say that the vagus nerve and enteric nervous system is responsible for much of the motor function of the esophagus. Alright, now that we've covered the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. When seeing a patient who complains of difficult swallowing, the history is the most important aspect of your assessment. The first thing to ascertain is whether the patient is having oropharyngeal or esophageal dysphagia. Typical oropharyngeal symptoms are when patients tell you that they cannot initiate a swallow or experience dysphagia immediately after initiating the swallow. In addition, they may have associated symptoms such as drooling, choking, or coughing. The common etiologies to think about for oropharyngeal dysphagia are typically neuromuscular in nature, including stroke or Parkinson's, or structural causes such as neoplasms or external compression from local structures. If the patient tells you that they feel food sticking in their chest or points to their sternum, that is more suggestive of an esophageal cause. However, it is critical to dispel a common misconception. The reverse is not true. That is, when the patient points above the sternal notch or throat, it does not necessarily indicate an oropharyngeal cause. Once you have decided that the problem likely lies in the esophagus, three questions are of interest. One, the types of foods that they have trouble with. Two, whether it's progressive or intermittent. And three, the associated symptoms. Dysphagia to solids is more suggestive of a mechanical issue, such as an obstruction while issues with both solids and liquids makes dysmotility more likely. Progressive worsening of symptoms may raise the possibility of malignancy, achalasia, or peptic strictures. Malignancies tend to occur on shorter time frames, while peptic stricturing disease tends to occur over months to years. 
If the symptoms are intermittent, then dysmotility, including dysmotility associated with GERD, or structural causes such as lower esophageal rings or webs, are more likely. Associated symptoms such as heartburn or dyspepsia may point towards esophagitis or peptic strictures. Weight loss often occurs in patients with achalasia or with malignancies, but often occur over shorter periods in the case of malignancy. A history of autoimmune disease such as connective tissue diseases like scleroderma may point to motility disorders, while atopy, like seasonal allergies and asthma, may be associated with eosinophilic esophagitis. Sometimes, the patient may also complain of pain while swallowing, called odynophagia, which is usually a sign of inflammation that has an extensive differential, including pill-induced, prior radiation damage, or infectious, such as viruses or fungal. In these patients, it is important to consider risk factors for opportunistic infections, such as HIV or immunosuppressive drugs, and take a best possible medication history to look for culprits of pill esophagitis. Although one could argue that the diagnostic utility of physical examinations for dysphagia is limited, certain elements are nonetheless indispensable. First, while most patients are likely hemodynamically stable who present with this symptom in clinic or on the ward, it is important to note any respiratory distress from possible aspiration or the inability to clear secretions from a severe obstruction. Next, note their weight and look for evidence of malnutrition. A full head and neck exam looking for visible masses, adenopathy, and cranial nerve deficits is important. It is also worthwhile inspecting the oropharynx for obvious signs of thrush or proximal oral lesions. An abdominal exam may reveal epigastric tenderness suggestive of ulcer disease. If the history is suggestive, a more complete physical looking for other signs of systemic illness such as Crest syndrome or limited scleroderma or neuromuscular disorders should also be done. Okay, on to the investigations. Routine blood work are important adjuncts that may point you to a diagnosis. Anemia may suggest a malignancy or occult upper GI blood loss. Grossly abnormal electrolytes or hypoalbuminemia can lend credence to the severity of the dysphagia leading to malnutrition. The bulk of diagnostic clarity will come from non-invasive imaging and endoscopy. If an oropharyngeal cause is suspected, a video fluoroscopy swallowing study by a trained speech-language pathologist is the first line of investigation. If the suspected cause is esophageal, the two key tests to consider are upper endoscopy and barium swallow. Recent Canadian guidelines propose that endoscopy is better as a first-line investigation for esophageal dysphagia from a diagnostic, therapeutic, and cost perspective. For example, an endoscopy can obtain biopsies to look for inflammation from reflux or eosinophilic infiltrates or provide relief by dilating strictures. However, practically speaking, a barium contrast study is an important adjunct that may inform endoscopy prior to it being arranged or when there is an issue with access to endoscopy. It is helpful for certain conditions where typical features like the corkscrew or bird's beak on imaging are strongly suggestive of diffuse esophageal spasm or achalasia respectively. We should emphasize here that the presence of alarm symptoms is an indication for urgent endoscopy. Alarm symptoms include weight loss, age over 50 years, anemia, adynophagia, and or signs of bleeding. Finally, manometry is another important test. Once structural and inflammatory causes have been ruled out by the tests above, this should strongly be considered if a primary motility disorder is suspected to be causing clinically significant symptoms. Okay, let's touch on treatment. The treatment of dysphagia obviously depends on the diagnosis. Consulting a gastroenterologist is strongly recommended, especially if you think they will require endoscopy. 
Given that GERD makes up one quarter of all patients with dysphagia, it is worthwhile discussing its management first. A four-week empiric trial of PPI can be considered in the setting of dysphagia with typical GERD symptoms, such as regurgitation, or heartburn in patients less than 50 years old and without alarm symptoms. The absence of any improvement should alert clinicians to an alternative diagnosis and to consider endoscopy. A related emerging entity is eosinophilic esophagitis. Once the diagnosis is made endoscopically with biopsies showing significant eosinophilic infiltrates, a two-month PPI trial is reasonable. In those who respond, the diagnosis is likely PPI-responsive eosinophilic esophagitis. In those who do not respond, dietary elimination of allergenic foods, topical steroids such as budesonide mixed as a slurry, or endoscopic management with dilation may be needed. Most other conditions that cause esophageal dysphagia necessitate some sort of endoscopic management. Benign strictures, rings, or webs may be dilated with a savary dilator or through the scope balloon. Myotomy may be performed for Zenker's diverticulum or for achalasia in a procedure called peroral endoscopic myotomy, or POEM, to relax the lower sphincter. The other definitive treatment options for achalasia are surgical myotomy and endoscopic dilation. Botox injection into the lower esophageal sphincter may be considered in patients with achalasia who would not be fit for a myotomy or a large pneumatic dilation. While pharmacological treatments such as nitrates or calcium channel blockers have limited efficacy, they may be considered in patients not fit for endoscopy or who decline procedures. Alright, let's finish with our medicine minute. Since we have talked so much about GERD being a very common cause of esophageal dysphagia, it is worthwhile to talk about the bad press PPIs have gotten in recent years. How do you reassure a patient who's worried about the side effects they have read about? First, it is important to inform patients that studies demonstrating adverse events like C. difficile infections, chronic kidney disease, collagenous colitis, pneumonia, to name a few, have all been retrospective studies and thus we cannot attribute causation. Second, there has been a recent publication in September of 2019, the COMPASS trial done at McMaster University led by Dr. Moyadi and colleagues, which is the largest prospective study looking at the safety of PPIs. The bottom line, in this multi-center, double-blind, placebo-randomized controlled trial of almost 18,000 people who received pantoprazole or placebo, there was no significant difference in adverse events when followed for three years, except possibly a weak association with enteric infections. It is important to then re-emphasize that while PPIs are certainly not the cure-all, particularly in the era of choosing wisely, in patients with good indications for PPI, the benefits almost certainly outweigh the risks. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Not So Difficult to Swallow, An Approach to Dysphagia. This episode was written by Dr. Peter Wang, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. David Reed, gastroenterologist, and Dr. Stephen Gauthier, general internist. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Kirianopoulos. This podcast was recorded and produced by Leah Kirianopoulos. Music by Lakshmi Santhamal. Don't forget to check out our website www.theinternetwork.com for associated infographics and resources. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.